ever asked yourself, what would it take to build a better Canada? What kinds of priorities would have to be set? What sort of changes might be necessary? And what might that mean for our quality of life, the way we work, even the lives we lead? There's certainly no shortage of challenges. Climate change, the pandemic, creating an economy that's stronger, more sustainable, and more inclusive. Even for a country like Canada, with all of our advantages, that's a tall order. But are things as good as they could be? Are we tapping our fullest possible potential? Is Canada poised to lead the way, or will we be scrambling to catch up with others? The place to go looking for those answers is in the hearts and heads of those who have been tackling the hard work of unlocking Canada's potential already. The experts and innovators, the leaders, the doers. You want to figure out how to create a Canada that's greener, healthier, happier, and wealthier? Then you've come to the right place. I'm your host, Scott Reed, and you're listening to the Keys to a Better Canada podcast. In this episode, we're going to explore the connection between a better Canada in an economy that's operating at full tilt. Specifically, an economy where ideas and the innovations they lead to are fully realized. Some would argue that a wealthier Canada is actually the key to everything else. You want a healthcare system built to last? A net zero plan that actually works? How about housing that's affordable or childcare that's accessible? All of that starts with an economy strong enough to pay the bills. So how do we get wealthier? How do we build a better, stronger, more inclusive economy? Canada's problem has never been, and never will be, that we're short on talented people with good ideas. No, where we sometimes struggle is finding ways to monetize that talent and brain power, turning a notion into an enterprise, and an enterprise into an economy that churns out jobs and growth. There are two schools of thought about all this. Some say our business community can be too quick to take the easy way out, too reluctant to bet on themselves, to reinvest, to take big chances. Others say it's the fault of government, that we smother everything in rules and regulations and do too little to reward initiative and attract capital. But look, blame it on business, blame it on politics, blame it on the weather. No matter who you blame, we're going to have to focus on overcoming the challenges, maximizing these opportunities. And at the heart of it all is the idea of ideas. What can we do to encourage those born entrepreneurs to keep them in Canada, make sure they don't come to believe that the only way they can realize their ambitions is to get someplace else? We need to excite these young innovators with the notion that here is where they want to be, where they can make their fortune, realize their goals, and here's where they want to remain. When it comes to understanding what needs to happen, how to support these entrepreneurs, how to equip them with the tools to succeed, who better to ask than someone who actually is one of Canada's most accomplished entrepreneurs? Ian Telfer, founder of Goldcorp, took a six-person mining company, transformed it into a $40 billion enterprise, employing something like 14,000 people, all within the course of a decade. His thoughts on what we can do better, they're going to be worth listening to. There's two things about Canadian entrepreneurs. Yeah, the first, I think they're too risk-averse. They're so afraid of failure, they don't take enough chances. And the second one is, I think too many of them, once they've made a little bit of money or reached a certain size, they immediately sell out. They don't have this burning desire to create international world-class companies that you really need if your nation's going to move ahead with, uh, with strong corporations uh, on your side. And I don't know whether it's because once you have a successful Canadian startup, they start to look at the size of the competition from the United States 
and they sort of panic and think, gee, you know, I've done pretty well here. I can take some money off the table. Google or Netflix or someone else is offering to buy me out at, you know, $100 million. And so they take it. Whereas so many American entrepreneurs fight and fight and fight to keep their company until it grows to a real world class size. Whenever you go to take a chance or take a risk or do something different, as I say, you're surrounded by people that will tell you why it won't work. And Canadians fear of failure stops them from going ahead with an idea that might be a very good idea. A good entrepreneur is someone who believes so strongly in something that uh, when others tell them how it could end badly for it, they just ignore it. They plow through and they stick with their idea. And of course, the good entrepreneurs are the ones whose ideas turned out to be successful. So you have to fight off a lot of negativity to be an entrepreneur. The central point Ian makes is that as a society, we have to alter and improve the way we approach risk. Of course, that's a lot easier said than done, especially in a world that's become cutthroat and patient with its capital, where investors begin by asking how quickly they can get their money out or how fast they can expect the returns to start rolling in. For entrepreneurs and the class of people that create things that require capital to succeed, this impatience poses as much risk as almost anything else. That's why I often hear them talking about sticking with us through the long term, helping get past proof of concept and into scaling, waiting until they've ironed out the inevitable wrinkles and manage the process of getting up and running to growing sustainably. Fortunately for these creators, there is such a thing as patient capital, willing to provide good entrepreneurs with good ideas the time to prove themselves. Interestingly, one of the increasingly significant and powerful sources of such capital comes from family enterprises. Canada is actually something of a leader in this area. Businesses started and owned by families, but which have grown to significant scale. Sometimes publicly traded, more often privately held. And not only are they occupied with their own success, but through so-called family offices, they're becoming increasingly important players in the investment world. Family enterprises are unique. They come with a particular set of considerations and concerns. Legacy and generational issues loom large. Human capital, transition planning, often requiring very careful, very delicate management. And on the investment side, they're often quite dedicated to patient capital strategies, looking for shrewd, untapped opportunities, where near-term risk is balanced against the promise of more secure and stable long-term returns. The importance of these family enterprises are, relatively speaking, growing by the day. And they demand increased specialization, tailored insights, unique structures, and particular expertise. So who better to help us understand all this than Patricia Saputo, the CEO of Plasma and Talcan, the second largest shareholder in Saputo Inc., or as many others know it, one of the most influential family enterprises in Canadian history. Let's check in with her for a moment to gain a better understanding of the family enterprise model and its unique dynamics. Uh, Family-owned businesses focus on family uh, financial stability. Uh, they don't take on as much debt. They focus on in, in, in innovation and improvement. Um, they, they look at the relationships with all stakeholders, you know, whether it's the employees working internally or suppliers externally. Any excess cash is reinvested. They don't pay out dividends. That's what's important to any family-owned business is what happens in the next generations. And when we look at those um, goals, uh, we look at not only the financial capital uh, in, in developing a legacy, you look at all the other types of capital. And I use the acronym of FISH. 
uh, where you have the financial, the intellectual, the social, and the human. And when you look at your hand, you've got your uh, financial capital, which is the thumb, and then your intellectual, social, human, as well as your tangible capital or your fingers. And the thumb can only work as well as the fingers in holding on to something. And developing that legacy, you need all of these uh, uh, types of capital working together. So you need to invest in the intellectual. It's a talent gap that the family has. The social is the social circles, all the relationships, the community connections that you make, as well as the human side, developing the individual. I think during COVID, we've seen that their ability to pivot uh, is more flexible uh, because you know they're not they're not answering to uh, other shareholders in the public market, and and they're not answering to you know the board is you know the family members, and they have they do understand that if they don't pivot and they don't adapt uh, to what the changes are out there, then how do they uh, put food on the table? How do they feed the family, and how do they allow? Uh, the next generations uh, to do well if they don't pivot. From unleashing the power of our entrepreneurs to supporting the unique needs of family enterprises to harnessing the patient capital of family offices, there's a lot to think about when it comes to creating, cultivating, and keeping wealth. And as we find from speaking with Ian Telfer and Patricia Saputo, one of the best ways to uncover new ideas is to talk with those who have proven experience. That's also why the Telfer School of Management has established the Family Enterprise Legacy Institute. It researches and gathers new learnings on this topic, all of which you can access by visiting familyenterpriseinstitute.ca. Now, tune in next episode and hear us talk with two titans of Canadian medicine and healthcare to gain a better understanding of how we can work together to build a healthier Canada.